Good morning, everyone. Welcome to City on a Hill. My name's Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you this morning. If you would, find a copy of Scripture, whether it's a physical copy or on your phone or other device, some sort of format of Scripture, and turn to Daniel 10. Um, probably this morning, more than any other morning, we're going to be jumping around a lot uh, probably taking bits out of uh, maybe five or so chapters of Daniel. So now more than ever, it's important to have a copy in front of you that you can go and look and kind of see what I'm saying before we get uh, into it. Also, we just want to say thank you to everyone who has uh, loved on us and blessed us since Felicity was born, whether you sent a card or brought a meal or um, took charity away for a while. So we could have some peace or, or, you know, anything like that, whatever it was. We just felt super loved and blessed by our, our church family and, and wanted to take a moment to say thank you and um, just appreciate you guys coming around us in that way. Dave mentioned it last week, but I am excited to preach this morning because I like the challenge. There's, you know, three chapters. They may not be the easiest to understand three chapters and kind of to distill that into a 40-minute sermon that's hopefully understandable and applicable um, was exciting to me, especially once uh, last week Dr. Stetzer was like, yeah, I'll come, but I won't, I won't preach on those things. That made me feel good. And then, and then uh, Pastor Dave literally fled the country. And, and so I said, here I am, O Lord, send me. But seriously, this morning we're, we're wrapping up our series called Daniel Shining in the Darkness with those last three chapters. And, and like I said, it's a, it is a lot of material, but they're all kind of related in kind of one uh, grouping unit of vision slash prophecy that seemed best to kind of take it all together in one morning. But we are kind of landing the plane this morning, and I think I want us to kind of think of that analogy as, as we're thinking about and kind of making expectations for what we're going to study this morning. Uh, if you've ever flown on an airplane, flown into a, a big city like Chicago or New York or something like that, and as you're descending, if you got that coveted window seat, the window's like this big, you, you know, maybe you're one of those aisle people. I've never met anyone that's like, Oh, I love the middle seat. It's just great. But if you're, if you're one of the window seat people, you know, you open up that little, little window, and as you descend, you can, you can see the city, right? You can kind of get a lay of the land. Somewhere like New York, you'd see landmarks like the Statue of Liberty. That's kind of what we're doing this morning. So obviously, three chapters. We can't cover every little detail, but we're going to get some landmarks, get some highlights, kind of get a lay of the land, but um, there's, there's this person out there, and I'm kind of making this up, but I'm, I'm guessing it's probably true, right? Someone out there is probably writing their PhD thesis on, like, the visions in Daniel or something like, like that. That person is, is on the ground with their magnifying glass, looking at every detail, uncovering every rock. That is not us this morning. So if you're one of these people, you love uh, prophecy, you can consider yourself a student of prophecy. I think there's a time and a place for those things. Uh, but just know that's not like really going to be us this morning. So like I mentioned, we should be finding our way to Daniel 10. And I entitled this morning's message, 
the end game. You guys have probably at least heard of the Marvel, Marvel superhero movies. Um, the kind of climax of that series, don't talk to me about Phase 4 and the new ones, the kind of climax of this series is Avengers Endgame. It was released in 2019. It's over three hours long. It's chock full of big stars. Disney spent over $500 million uh, producing it and marketing it around the world. And in many ways, the whole kind of series up to that point, uh, over, over 10 years worth of movies, was kind of uh, building to this point, this climax. Um, so spoilers ahead, but also, if you haven't seen it yet, like here we are four years later, you probably don't really care. So that's, that's what I'm kind of going with. So uh, if you do, I guess plug your ears. So a movie before is, is uh, Infinity War, and the, the big kind of bad villain of the whole series, we'll have a, a picture up here for you, is, is Thanos. He's the, uh, the purple one on the left. He is, he's close to completing his, his weapon of mass destruction. He's going to wipe out half of the population of the universe. And um, kind of in what, what is the last ditch effort, uh, uh, the Avengers are, are fighting Thanos. He really needs two more Infinity Stones, but once he gets the one that Doctor Strange had, the, the last one takes like five minutes. It's almost, it's almost irrelevant. So this is kind of the, the climax here. They're fighting, and our hero, Doctor Strange, the one on the right, um, once the battle starts not going well, willingly gives up this, this stone, this thing that Thanos needs to, to complete his weapon. And, and just like you might expect, once Doctor Strange gives it up, uh, it, like I said, it takes about five more minutes. He, he poofs himself to a new planet, beats up the rest of the Avengers. He wins. He, he gets rid of half the population of the universe. And the movie ends there. And we have this moment of hope where Doctor Strange explains, and this is his line, he says, we're in the end game now. And that's it. Now, obviously, they're kind of like, it's a movie, they're building two, they want you to go see the next one and spend your money, blah, blah, blah. But imagine what the, and maybe you felt it as you were watching this movie yourself, the feelings in that moment of what the heck is Doctor Strange thinking? And kind of the confusion and anger, at, like the good guys didn't win, like, like evil won, they're in a really bad place. And that's how it's left. Again, they want you to come back. So you do come back, with because their cliffhanger worked, you come back for the next movie, Endgame, and you find out that all along, Doctor Strange giving the bad guy the stone that he needed was all part of the plan. You find out in, in all the plans he had considered, there was only one that had any chance for the heroes to win, and that was if he gave up the stone. We didn't know it, but all of this bad stuff and, and ultimately Thanos, the villain, winning had to happen for the heroes to ultimately win. Which, of course, again, spoilers ahead, because it's a movie, ultimately they do ride, and, and everyone's pretty much everyone's brought back that, that can be brought back, and, it, and it's all good for the most part, and it's a happy ending. The ending to Daniel is a little bit like that. Or maybe, because Daniel was first, 
Endgame is a little bit like Daniel, or is a little bit like redemptive history. Through it, Daniel, God is warning us things are going to be bad, extremely bad, extremely difficult, but it's all part of the plan to get to that end game, the best end game. None of this is a surprise, and here's what I'm calling you to do while you wait to trust in me and my plan and know how this ends, know our end game. I don't believe the point in all this prophecy and visions throughout Daniel is that we can have a totally accurate picture of what's to come and to know the exact date. Martin Luther put it this way, Daniel concludes the record of his terrifying visions and dreams on a note of joy, pointing to the coming of Christ's eternal reign of glory. Whoever wants to study them profitably dare not focus his attention on the details of the visions and dreams, but seek comfort in the Savior Jesus Christ, whom they portray, and the deliverance he brings from sin and its misery. Now, he says that kind of strongly. Like I said, there is some value in, in the particulars in studying those things, but as far as our what we're driving after today is basically that. How do we see the deliverance Jesus Christ brings from sin and misery? And what, what else kind of themes or lessons can we learn from this? In other words, what is God's end game for us? But certainly now more than ever, we could use God's help in rightly understanding his word and rightly applying it to our lives. So let's pray as we continue. Father, thank you for your word, that it is like you. It's, it's complex, and it's deep, and it has deep truths for our lives. It's not like a children's book that I read to my daughter before bed, that it's simple and easy to understand, and once you do it once, um, there's not much to it. Your word, there's always something more to be applied and to learn and to understand and a greater depth to you. Help us to understand your word. Help us to apply and, and get out of it what you have for us this morning. I pray that you do a work even, even now on our ears and just our hearts and our minds to help us hear and understand and internalize and uh, that we would come away desiring you more, and desiring to honor ourselves less. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So this morning, I've, I've organized our time kind of around three specific themes. One is uh, these character, the character, the characteristics of the Antichrist. Two, the character of the righteous. And then three, that all of that is all according to plan. So let's talk about that first kind of theme character is the character of the Antichrist. And that's pretty like, I don't know, strong or, or, or spicy way to start a sermon is just to be like, hey, Antichrist, when did we start talking about him? I think it's back in Daniel 7 and 8, which we'll kind of reference in a second. But for now and for our purposes, let's say that the Antichrist is a specific person foretold of in Scripture who's going to come before Christ's second coming, and who's going to pretend to be the Messiah. So it's this specific person who's going to come, and he's going to pretend to be the Messiah, and lots of people are going to believe that he is before Jesus comes back the second time. 
But uh, for now, let's kind of go to Daniel 10, kind of scan over it, give it a look. The beginning of it is especially familiar. Dave talked about it a couple weeks ago uh, briefly. Daniel's distressed, another vision, an angel comes to help. Um, I want to look at verses 18 through 21 right now. Just read those real quick. This is an angel speaking to Daniel. Excuse me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. When I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And I'm, you remember when Dave talked about this, there's some, some angelology, demonology stuff going on here. We won't say any more about it other than what, what Dave already said. Uh, but I wanted to kind of say some of this is just reiterating what we already saw earlier in Daniel. So I have this um, uh, graphic for you, and we're not going to talk through all of it, but I uh, thought it would be helpful to kind of uh, jog your memory. So on the far left there from Daniel 2, Remember, there's this dream about the statue of the gold, silver, and brass, and iron clay that was supposed to be walking you through these different kind of kingdoms, these different world powers, the the Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. This kind of section in in chapter 10 is kind of um, reiterating some of that. So obviously that part we just read was the Persia to Greece part, but it's, it's kind of also talking about this succession of world powers. So nothing like crazy new in that sense. But as we, we move on to chapter 11, there's this talk of a king of the south and a king of the north. Um, if you look to the right there, it's kind of the latter days, that's kind of what we're getting into, um, which is kind of the tail end of Greece or kind of in between Greece and Rome. And as you're kind of thinking about a world history or redemptive history. And you see um, the suggestion on here is that the the king of the south is Egypt, uh, and the king of the north is Syria, and this particular person named Antiochus Epiphanes, who who was the king over that area at this time. Um, There's been, uh, like many things from these three chapters, lots of suggestions made by lots of godly men and women who have lots, lots of PhDs. Uh, but this part with, with Egypt and Syria is, is maybe one of, the, one of the parts we're most confident about, or one of the, one of the parts that <clears throat> line up nicely with history. And starting in, like I mentioned, this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, many commentators agree that starting in chapter 10, verse 21, is where we talk specifically about him, this kind of king of the north. And there are lots of people that see Daniel 7 and 8 also talking about him. He's the king of Syria by virtue of ruling the Seleucid Empire from 175 BC until his death in 164 BC. And you can read kind of in the section about some specific things that were prophesied that he he did and, and fulfilled in his life. As we come to chapter 11, we now join 
kind of the, the church and, and kind of the historical church in the, the time-honored tradition of, of playing the game of when are we talking about Antiochus and when are we talking about the Antichrist that we were talking about before, this, this false messiah that's going to come in this, this later future, like end times sort of uh, chronology. So for those of you playing at home, the popular options are, uh, starting at the very beginning of chapter 11, it switches to, to talking about the Antichrist, starting in chapter 11, verse 21, or starting in chapter 11, verse 36. And as you look at those and kind of look at chapter 11, there's, there are good reasons why different scholars land at the different places they do. Um, and are compelling reasons for each. But for our purposes this morning, I want to focus less on what's the exact verse where it switches and more talk about how prophecy, especially this kind of prophecy, often talks in this way of describing a near reality and a far-off future reality kind of simultaneously. In other words, biblical prophecy often has this kind of telescoping feature where uh, a, a more distant event kind of appears to merge with a nearer um, event so as to almost become indistinguishable from it. I know it's a lot. I'm just letting it kind of sink, sink in there. Um, example to, to help you. In, that's probably more well-known. In Matthew 24, right, Jesus makes this prediction about the fall of Jerusalem that is fulfilled in 70 AD. But he's also making a prophecy or making claims about what is to come at kind of the end of the age, end times, that has yet to be fulfilled. But when you read it, especially before the fall of Jerusalem, it's very hard to tell which is which or when it's both. And that's kind of what, what we're looking at this morning. So the reason Daniel spends so much time describing this one particular guy, Antiochus, and what he's going to do is because Antiochus is serving as a prophecy or a prefigure of the Antichrist to come. It's, or again, a lot of this is describing this man, Antiochus, but because it's serving as a, a type or a prefigure, of the Antichrist to come. And there's a lot of ways that this person is described, uh, both Antiochus and the Antichrist, that I, I, we should be aware of, we should be on the lookout for, and we have a few subpoints for you uh, this morning. And this is kind of the acts or the characteristics of the Antichrist that we need to be looking out for. And the first is that he devours. So if you want to flip back to Chapter 7, like I promised we would, verses 21 to 20 and 25, right? He destroys God's people. Chapter 8, verse 25, he'll destroy many. Chapter 11, verse 27, their hearts will be bent on doing evil. And for kind of each of these characteristics, I'll, I'll give an example of how Antiochus fulfills it, and, um, but also know, again, we're, we're imaging 
Antichrist to come will also have these characteristics. So Antiochus was, was uh, on the, the path to more territory, more power, to being under his reign. He was especially interested in, in control of Egypt and, and had several kind of different schemes uh, to try to acquire it, but never successfully did. That's part of this uh, kingdom of the north, kingdom of the south thing going on in these chapters. So he devours. Be he deceives. Uh, chapter 8, verse 25, he'll make deceit prosper. Chapter 11, verse 23, he'll act deceitfully. There's one historian wrote that Antiochus made various covenants without the slightest intention of inconveniencing himself to actually keep any promises he made, right? So you can kind of get the picture of it is he's making this grab for power and in greed, and he's making promises to people that he has no intention of keeping just to kind of further his own ends. See, he exalts man. Chapter 11, verse 31, they profane the temple and set up an abomination, right? They don't respect God. Chapter 11, verse 36, he exalts himself above God. He'll do what he will. Verse 38, he'll exalt himself above all. There's lots of ways Antiochus did this. My favorite one is um, he had money with his face printed on it, which isn't a huge deal. I mean, it is a little self-centered, but it's pretty common for rulers around this time, right? Um, but gradually over time, his, his image on the, the coins that they were producing got more and more pretentious. So it started out as just him, and then uh, uh, a star started to uh, appear on it to say, like, he's from above. And then they added this word that I've been saying with his title, Epiphanes, which uh, literally means God manifest, like saying, I am God manifest. And then... Um, there's a lot of Apollos and Zeus worship here. So he added certain, certain kind of aspects of them, like the sun and, and the laurels Zeus would often be pictured with. And he added those to his picture, too. And all of these things basically saying, like, I am God. I am, I am a God made manifest in human form, just like Right when we talked about the Antichrist, he's going to come and say, I am Jesus, I am God in human form, come. At this point, I want to kind of take a step back and say, okay, Jeff Fair, here's some characteristics of bad people, of, of the Antichrist, of this particular bad person. What should I do with this information? I think one of the biggest ones is do not be deceived. Do not let yourself be deceived. Though the Antichrist is not here yet, I don't think. Let me put that little caveat on it. We ought to know what we should be looking out for. In other words, he is going to come sometime, and us as followers of Jesus Christ ought to be able to identify between the fake and the real thing. Right? Both are coming back or both are coming, he's not coming back, both are coming, and we ought to be able to identify between the real thing. And kind of broadening the scope of that, we ought to be able to identify false teachers and false teaching, right? There's no shortage of that, even in the kind of big C global church today that we need to be on the lookout for. Just because someone 
comes and preaches or has a TV show or whatever doesn't mean they're teaching the truth of God's word. Even right now this morning, like I'm up here on this platform and I like to generally think I'm, I'm you know, preaching God's word and, and spilling truth. But don't just be like, oh, it's Jeff. You know, it's, it's good. But be thinking about what I'm saying. Is what, is what Pastor Jeff is saying or is what Pastor Dave is saying, is, is that truth from God's word or is that their own kind of cleverness of man? And Jesus kind of echoes the same sentiment uh, later in Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 7. So this is Jesus. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then Jesus answered them and, and gave them the exact date and year. No, right? said, his answer to them is, see that no one leads you astray. They ask when will these things be? And Jesus' answer is, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will, be, they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, so that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. So Jesus doesn't leave us with nothing, just like, just like the end of Daniel doesn't leave us with nothing, not like no clue. But the types of things he's saying are the signs are not good things, right? Wars and, and kingdom against kingdom and earthquakes and famines and et cetera, right? Jesus is agreeing with Daniel that things will get bad, things will be dark, people will pretend to be me to come in my name. And just like we saw in uh, Daniel 7, and in Antiochus, even, even though the Antichrist himself, I think, isn't here yet, the spirit of the Antichrist is. And I get that from 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. It says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And by many Antichrists have come... Meaning these, these false teachers, these false prophets have come, are coming to lead us astray. They're, they have come, they are coming to lead us astray. And we need to be on the lookout for those things in what we're taking in and what, what is proclaimed to be truth. We also need to see it in our, or we also see it and need to be on the lookout for it in our culture. These three things, the devouring, the lying, the self-centeredness, right? I'm sure it wouldn't take long for us to think about our current situation and, and just life and the world and our, our culture and all these things to say, I can see ways in the last 150 years there's been more war and destruction and, and people killed and, and and babies aborted and, and culture trying to deceive us into thinking things about pride and and sexuality, and sin, and lying, and laziness, and blah, 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 and on and on that aren't true, but they want to believe, and they want us to believe. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, or these other kings of Babylon, and Antiochus, and the Antichrist, right, we have this natural tendency toward, I want to be the point, right? I want to make it about me. I want to worship me. I want to be comfortable. We need to look out for that for ourselves, but also this should influence how we interact with one another. It should influence how we interact with one another. What we say to one another 
I don't mind small talk. I don't mind talking about the game. I don't mind talking about I'm a Purdue graduate, how Purdue utterly embarrassed us in the first round of the March Madness tournament, losing to the, the last seed as a number one seed. It's OK. <laughs> um, I don't mind talking about those things. But are we, when we come together on Sunday mornings, are we also talking about those things of like, what is God doing in your life? For a small group, what is God doing in your life? How can I be praying for you? That sort of thing. Together as a church, we're kind of going through this gospel fluency growth class right now. And there's, there's almost 40 of us kind of going through that together in, in different formats and different, different days and different things like that. So I want to kind of encourage and acknowledge that church family. Thank you for kind of responding in that way and being like, yeah. I want to grow in this and want to spend time on that. So, so good work in that sense. But I wanted to, one of the themes from that book is, in kind of gospel fluency, is that when we, uh, through life and the different circumstances of life and as we interact with one another, that the gospel would just kind of like come out of us. Right? Just like English just kind of like comes out of me. I'm not sitting here like, oh man, how do I, how do I say this thing I want to say? Right? I just do it. I, like, I want to say it and then I say it. In the, in the same way that, that when life comes and when we're interacting with other people, that we wouldn't have to think really hard like, and be super intentional about, oh, i got to speak the gospel and to do this. That we'd just be so in love with it and so in love with God's word that as we're interacting, we just come out of us, right? Is that where we're at? Is that truth just coming out of us in that way? Is that what we interact around? My kind of like final admonition for this section. You've heard me say many times our ultimate goal is to glorify God, to please Him, to image Him. You know, whatever, whichever one of those speaks to you, I think it's basically the, the same thing. When you are doing these things, right, this, this sort of selfishness, this deceit, this kind of devouring um, sort of, of, of lust. Who are you imaging more, right? Are you imaging Christ, who you've been called to, and are you glorifying him? Or are you more closely imaging, are you more closely glorifying the Antichrist? And that's a little bit of a, I don't know, uncomfortable thought maybe. It's kind of like, ooh, did he just say I'm like the Antichrist? Maybe, I don't know. Um, and I want it to be a little uncomfortable or to be a little like in your face, like, hey, when you do these things, you're like the Antichrist. Because we shouldn't be comfortable with our sin, right? Especially these big, big sins maybe that have been going on for years in your life. It's easy to, to get a little too comfortable with them and just be like, well, this is something I'm going to struggle with for the rest of my life. And so, yeah, I'm going to kind of acknowledge it but not going to seriously work hard toward it. Or to be like, I'm saved. I'm, I'm good. You know, I've had some sanctification, and I'm not perfect. You know, no one will be. So it, we're kind of, that's just kind of how it's going to be, right? But instead that we would, we would view our sin like God views our, our sin, that would, it would be an abomination to us, that we would always take it seriously, and always be striving, knowing we never will fully succeed, to root out that sin in our lives. Because 
We, as God's people, are called to be of a different spirit, set apart about different things, of a different spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. And that's kind of our second point I want to talk about, is that in the midst of all these hard things, of the darkness of this world, the, the kind of yuck of it, the second point, the character of the righteous, is what God is calling us to in the midst of it. So he's not, he's not calling us to, you will be able to fix the whole world and make everything awesome. He's saying, this is what I've called you to, and to act in the midst of it. If you're looking at the clock, you're like, oh man, it's already been 30 minutes. We're going to be here until like 3 o'clock. Don't worry, the next points will go quicker. So um, in this kind of series, Shining in the Darkness, this is God telling us, this is how I've called you in your character to shine in the darkness. So again, four subpoints here. A, they know God. Chapter 11, verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. In other words, the righteous are identified by their knowledge of God and their relationship with him. We should be striving for more knowledge of God and, and a deeper relationship with him. And while the world is going to darkness and, and basically going to pot around them, they be stand firm and take action. And we don't retreat. We don't uh, say, I've had enough of this world I'm going to stay in my house and never talk to a non-believer ever again, right? We persevere. We are a people with hope, not in our circumstances, but we have a hope that surpasses understanding. We take action as the world falls apart, as the darkness creeps in. We don't run and hide. We push it back. And one of the ways we do that is see we share the truth of God. Chapter 11, verse 33, the wise among the people shall make many understand. Chapter 12, verse 3, turn many to righteousness. One of these actions is we are in the world, not of the world, so that we might win some to Christ, no matter how dark it gets. And D, they purify themselves, or we purify ourselves. We repeatedly see this theme of, of being made white, being purified, of refined. Here's just one example, chapter 11, verse 35. Some of the wise shall stumble. Why? So that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Friends, we live in a dark time where there's, there's suffering, there's sin, there's hardships, And God has called us not to run and to hide, but to stand firm and to act in the midst of it. So my kind of challenge for you at this juncture is how is God calling you to act in your context, in this place, right? Madison, Dane County, they don't love the truth of Scripture. They don't especially love us either for believing it. And God, God is calling us to love them Anyway, and like we talked about last week with doc, Dr. Stetzer, share the truth with them. They need to hear this truth. We need to be serious about our own sanctification, our own purification, and we persevere. And one of the ways we persevere is by knowing 
that end, that end game for us. And part of it is knowing that in the midst of this darkness and the suffering and these trials, that it's all a part of the plan. It's all according to plan. That third point, it's all according to plan. It's, it's dark, it's going to get darker, but it's all according to plan. And God in his infinite wisdom is playing for the end game, just like in Endgame, when Doctor Strange gave up the stone and half the people disappeared in the universe, it's easy to think, is this really the plan? You can point to things in your own life. Is this really the plan? And God is saying, yes, it is. And this is the end game for us. And the Israelites there needed to hear that God, they were going to suffer more. The first kind of wave of, of refugees from Assyria, Babylon, had made its way back to Israel. They need to hear that there's going to be more suffering, but it, it's not necessarily a punishment like their exile to Assyria slash Babylon was. Maybe you need to hear that this morning too, that the junk in your life, this darkness may not be a result of your own sin. It may be part of living in a dark, fallen world. And nothing's wrong if you, your life isn't full of, of just wonder and joy and all smiles and happiness, but there are valleys too. Maybe you were a victim of someone else sinning against you, of, of abuse or neglect. And maybe you need to hear, yes, you weren't perfect, but their sin and the way they treated you is not your fault. Right? You are not responsible for what they did for their sin. But we do, all of us need to hear this morning, it's all part of God's plan. God's going to make it right, and in the end, his end game, use it for good. In the midst of all the suffering and evil, it's all part of the plan. I know uh, Pastor Dave already touched on Daniel 9. I just want to kind of take one verse from that because I think it ties in really, really well. Chapter 9, verse 24, this idea of to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity and to bring about everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Who do we know that has done those things? Right? Now it's time to whip out your Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? Jesus died on the cross for us. And, and there's sort of an already but not yet here, right? Jesus came and died for us, and he paid for our sins so that ever, whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life with him. When we couldn't do it on our own, Jesus paid the price that we couldn't so that we could be justified, and he would take away our iniquities. But there's a not yet. Because when, I don't know about you, but when I go out in the world and I live my life, and even in my own personal life, there's still sin and there's still iniquity and there's still unrighteousness. So we, we get to look back. They couldn't, right, because Jesus hadn't come yet. But we get to look back and see, see the near term, how Jesus came and, and brought those things about. But there's also a, a longer term, Jesus is coming back, and this is kind of the ultimate end game. And look at uh, chapter 12 now, verses 1 through 2. 
At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. Sounds fun. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This book, the book they're talking about, is the book of life. Uh, it's referred to a few other times in Scripture. Here's just one example from Revelation 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that's really what verse 2 is describing. There's a lot of confusing stuff in the end of Daniel. There's the 70 weeks, which, which uh, kind of ties in with uh, your view on the rapture and, and the timing of that, and when is that going to take place relative to the, the millennial kingdom and, and all this other stuff. And there's all these particulars and all these different theories about all those different things. But no matter where you land on the specifics of all of that, this is the end. Everyone's going to live forever, and there's really only two places you can go. Like verse 2 says, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Some will go to heaven, some will be thrown into the lake of fire, like Revelation says. And the names that are in that book of life that it's talking about are the people that have put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And, and you can make sure, you can know that you know that you know that your name is in that book today. You can know that your name is in that book today by putting your faith and trust in his sacrifice for you. We can know that we know that we know because our end game is not how awesome this life will be, but spending forever with God in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where our hope is. It's not in, man, if I, if I become a Christian and, and hang out with really good people, spoiler, we're not. We're trying to be, but we're not. <clears throat> then, I'll, you know, life will be good and I'll be happy or, or you know, I'll get married and, and then I'll be fulfilled or I'll have kids and they'll, they'll if they would just obey and, and do what I say and, and all that, then I, and then that would lead me to rest, enough rest and entertainment, and then I'll be fulfilled, or if I get that job that I always wanted, or had X amount of money, or the respect and admiration of others, all these things are, are easy to want to pursue, but just are not promised to us. And we'll always find, if you ever do get them, that they won't fulfill us. But what are we promised? God is in control. There is a plan. I know it's hard in the, the darkness to trust that, but there is a plan, and he will be glorified. And the end of it all, if we run the race with endurance and trust in him, one day he's going to finish making all this right. He's going to bring on that end game that we're, we're looking to. That's our end game. He's going to defeat the villain once and for all, and we'll have eternal life with him. And there'll be no more death and no more sin and no more suffering and no more shame for those who love him. I want to invite the, the worship team back up now. And as we wrap up, I want to look at chapter 12, verses 8 through 9. Verse 8, but as for me, 
I heard but could not understand. So this is Daniel talking after he's gotten all these visions. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And maybe at this point, if you're like me, you're feeling a little bit like Daniel. He's, he gets to the end and he's like, um, could you, I don't know, explain it in a different way? Like, I'm not, not sure I'm fully tracking here. Um, and the response in verse 9 is, is, oh yeah, sure. No, he says, go, on, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. He heard, and yet even Daniel is not understanding. Some is concealed, hidden, and not clear, and won't be until the end time. So, so even if uh, this morning you heard all these things, and you say, Pastor Jeff, I heard your sermon. I'm not sure it's clear to me. That's okay. But I think there are a few things from this morning that are clear that we can know. Right? This is all part of the plan. God knows the plan, and you can trust and know the God that knows. Go on your way. Keep the faith. Be strengthened by that truth. And in the midst of this darkness and suffering and opposition, this isn't a surprise. It's all part of the plan. And we know that end game, right? We don't know what's going to come in this life or next week or a year from now, or how much time we have left on this earth. But we know that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we know how it's all going to end. And I want to wrap up our time, uh, how kind of Daniel wraps up. Daniel 12, verse 13. This is how kind of Daniel ends this whole book, and this is how we'll end this morning. But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth that you are in control and we can trust in you. And God, it's so hard in the, in the, in the midst of the darkness and suffering and trials and the confusion of the various just ideas and, and truths that we hear. Father, would you guide us to your truth? Would you help us to sort through those? Would you help us to discern what you want us to do and to follow? What, what you want us to do in the midst of the darkness, how we can be a light? Father, I ask for forgiveness for any ways that we have um, not taken sin seriously in our own hearts, where we've maybe become a little too comfortable. Father, would you reveal those places in our lives and help us to see and agree with you about our sin. Think about our sin and, and feel about our sin the way you think and feel about our sin. And Father, would our hope not be in that promotion or our perfect kids or our perfect spouse, but that one day you will come back and you will make all things right. And that you have sealed us for that by your sacrifice on the cross. And it's nothing that we could ever do or accomplish on our own. But we trust in what you've done. In the name of your son that, that died for us. Amen.